This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's a place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. Well, welcome aboard, folks, one more time. Here we have, we are at Core Brain Journal, and as you know, we have a number of interesting guests, and interestingly enough, even though I've been in the whole ADHD community for a long period of time, uh, we haven't had a lot of people on talking about ADHD in the, in the context that we're going to be talking about it with Dr. Jerry Markle. Jerry, welcome aboard. We look forward to talking to you. Thank you. So Jerry's going to tell us about a number of different practical, uh, highly resolvable street understandings of how we can take executive function right down to a uh, increased level of responsibility, better function, uh, and ownership in terms of how a person can really understand themselves better. And we're going to talk about that today from a number of different angles. But before we begin, let me just, uh, before I introduce Jerry formally, let me introduce you to a couple of the sponsors that were very pleased are helping us along the way. You listeners already know how much we love the reality of hard data here at CBJ. And today we welcome our clinical friend and our new sponsor partner, Direct Health Access Laboratory. With over 3 million studies, they're deep leaders of experience with a big picture of measuring. Get this, for example, methylation, cryptopyrrole, and copper challenges. They have a global service with a molecular focus. If you're interested, run over to dhalab.com forward slash core and take a look at what all those big words mean and how they apply to neuroscience. Then you CBJ listeners also already know how much we appreciate detailed improvements of the how of mind care, kind of what we're going to be talking with Jerry about. Today, we're also pleased to welcome our partner with a deep interest in fresh options to address the complexity of adolescent treatment failure nationally, indeed internationally. For 80 years, the nonprofit Barry Robinson Center teams in Norfolk, Virginia, provide residential care on an evolved family, interpersonal, and indeed global level. And there are more on them in just a moment. They're over at Barry Robinson, B-A-R-R-Y, Robinson.org forward slash core. Take a look and see what you think. And we'll say more about them in just a moment. So let me introduce Jerry to you. Geraldine Markle is a PhD born in Brooklyn, New York. And she's currently CEO of Managing Your Mind Coaching and Seminars in Ann Arbor, Michigan, beautiful Ann Arbor, Michigan. Previously, she was uh, faculty at the School of Education, University of Michigan. And she's a productivity coach for adults and adolescents with ADHD and related executive function challenges. She's the author of several books we'll be talking about. Her newest one is Actions Against Distractions, Something to Do, Managing Your Scattered, Disorganized, and Forgetful Mind. You know, doing is what it's all about instead of undoing, as we know. So then she's got two other books and we'll have them listed. She's also providing a series of tips, the Feeding the Eight Demons of Distraction. That's going to be a download here on the show notes. So you've been very generous, Jerry. We really appreciate your coming on board. 
So tell us a little bit about how you got into this field, right out of beautiful downtown Brooklyn, out there to beautiful downtown Ann Arbor. It's just great to be with you today. I started out here at the University of Michigan not knowing too much about research and just as a graduate student uh, falling in love with some of the behavioral technology that was being explored at that time because it provided some specific answers. So I started out as a middle school teacher, a high school teacher, then went into graduate school and, and uh, being a faculty person. And I always had, as an educational psychologist, one foot in education and training and the other foot in business. And so that allowed me to bring the research uh, about unique learners to the business community and help them design training and be the best leaders they could. Mm, interesting. That's a different wrinkle. So you actually have some strategies for actually assessing human beings in terms of their receptive capacity Correct. and how, how to actually train them. That right. sounds very interesting. So then, so then and you had the chance to practice it as well as a teacher at uh, University of Michigan. Right. And um, I think one of the things that is needed is that people – need a perspective, especially if they're talking about symptoms of ADHD. Many people don't self-identify, but they have many, many symptoms. And they disappoint themselves, and they disappoint others, and they feel frustrated and unhappy. And when we use the research on learning, on behavior, and not only behavior change, but maintenance over the long term, we can begin to get life transformation where people are able to be more productive. So it's all about productivity, reducing stress, and really being a little happier and satisfied. Yeah, I think that whole thing, Jerry, is so important about symptoms because if you look at the criteria in the book, which are all behavioral criteria, right, and we're really dealing with the mind, which is not behavioral, which has its own function beyond behavior. You know, it's, it's cooking back there regardless of what you're showing. And so that what happens is the symptoms oftentimes are more internal rather than observable on the outside, which leads to an um, unpleasant bias against what's actually going on with the brain because we're so uh, desirous of making the diagnosis based on appearances. It's the criteria and the standard of care. So, so you're really looking more deeply as what's going on. Right. Um in an academic setting, I work as a team member, often getting referrals from neuropsychologists or psychologists, and then using their neuro neuropsych reports to identify real strengths and places that are real barriers. And you'll find people who have terrific intellectual potential, but their profile is so uh, varied that they might be a person who likes to mull things over, they do things slowly, but they're accurate. Well, in today's society, everybody wants everybody to do things really quickly. And mm -hmm. so it starts to stand out in the crowd if you have any kind of unevenness in your profile. That's for people with ADHD and people without it. We all have some uniqueness. So, Jerry, what are some of the things you find in the executive clients that you work with, the successful individuals who do very well but hit a wall 
and they just can't figure out what's going on with this wall. And they seem to have interpersonal challenges that don't make any sense because they're not emotionally volatile. They're not jumping up in chairs. They're not throwing beer bottles at passing cars. They're, they're high-level functioning individuals. What would you say the theme would be or, or several themes that you might share with our listeners that have been important for you to address as you go along your professional path? I think the first thing is to have people identify uh, that there are some difficulties, but do it perhaps with a little bit of humor. Uh, so frequently when I'm talking to somebody, I'll say, you sound like a person who's gifted and has a glitch. And, <laughs> and glitch may have to do with time management, with following up. Uh, you may be very creative and be a visionary, but walk out of the meeting and never call anybody back. And so your strengths are viewed and appreciated, and your difficulties are unexplained and resented. And so we have this conflict of how to balance the strengths versus the challenges. Well, you know, Jerry, in my experience, and you're, you're raising some interesting points in my immediate association to what you're saying, is the manifestation of the skill sets in a group setting and how a group setting changes the um, economy of mind, if you will, with an individual who's very who's a writer or a speaker because they're in control when they're writing, they're in control when they're speaking, right? And yet, when they get to the variables of group circumstance, right. and it's not that, the, and and they don't have to be. I've had really smart people come in and say they're they're Aspies, Asperger, you mm -hmm. know, because they just don't get what to do with themselves, and they start putting themselves over in that box which is not what they are, right. they appear to be that way sometimes or manifestations thereof, but they aren't really that way. It's just that they're cognitively misaligned with the complexity of the moment and don't have a plan. <laughs> and, and not uh, infrequently, people are getting by with their strengths. It may be their charm, maybe their intellect, maybe their creativity or talent. And they ride along with that until things start to get complicated. And that's not the only thing they have to do. And when you start expanding that they have to, they're gifted, maybe they don't suffer fools very easily, but they have to be patient. They mm -hmm. learn things out. They can't act impulsively because even if it's a brilliant idea. So I think it's an expansion. People have to be looking at an expansion of an already uh, wonderful set of talent or skills. But this is part of your professional development. This executive functioning, which used to be work habits or time management or organization, we're putting it together now. And so if you don't have that executive function, you know, it's an orchestra without a conductor. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an express train with, with no uh, GPS. And so what happens if you're only looking at a deficit and thinking of ADHD as a deficit and the, uh, the yeah. bad system, then you're not willing to look at maturing as a professional and that all professionals need to expand their repertoire of skills. Just look at the 360 evaluations if they're still using them. And you see that the communication, the interaction, and the work habits become as important 
as the intellect. Yeah, I so much agree with you. You know, the whole idea of deficit is uh, anathema to recovery because you almost have to, it's like, you know, you're nothing but an alcoholic and until you get that straight, I mean, it's so reductionistic and so disrespectful of an individual because by far the greatest number of people I see, and even if they aren't uh, serious professionals and academicians, is unmanageable cognitive abundance. They have too much going on. Right. And they can't get it organized because everything is so exciting and interesting and relevant on some level. How do I sort it out? And it's a sorting problem of attention abundance disorder, not attention deficit disorder. And we see that. That's something we see all the time. And that's what you were talking about. Right. And I think um, what I try to provide is a system that we're looking at what happens before your behavior um, is there what happens during the time you're behaving and what happens after, what are the consequences? And once you become aware of what's going on, you can say too much creativity. Let's <laughs> put all these ideas in the nice to know, but not the necessary because I, I just need X, Y, and Z to write this annual report. And so you begin to get into self-regulation. It's not only managing the time, but managing your thinking uh, depending on what the goals and the necessity is. And I think a lot of people are keep striving to show people how smart they are. And what happens is you get to diminishing returns. People don't care how smart you are if you're overbearing and, and, and not listening. Well, that is so true. I mean, I've seen so many really smart colleagues who are exactly that way, and they don't get over proving how smart they are. I mean, it just, right. it's, and, and, you know, it winds up, you see this in, in meetings, uh, you know, where the person has to be right then because they want to be smart, then they, then they get angry on top of it, you know, they, right. and they think, then I'm going to switch over to some Freudian model of catharsis. You know, I'm going to be cathartic here because it's going to be healthy for me to just go ahead and spill my guts in this one situation that is absolutely uh, abominable. So therefore, it's totally reasonable for me to freak out. And we see that happen so often. We've seen it happen. And you think of these really wonderful people who are gifted, as you've said several times here, who just lose their entire sense of credibility there because who wants to listen to somebody who's bombastic? Right. I had one... uh one graduate student, and he said, you know, giftedness is not all it's cracked up to be. (laughs) (laughs) So I think especially when people have not been diagnosed and their primary um, label is gifted and they're carrying these bowling balls on their legs of impulsivity or short attention span or whatever the problem is, uh, they start getting some serious emotional overlays. And they have to, when, that's why a neuropsych exam is so important for a gifted or um, you know, graduate student, anybody who wants to move ahead and really develop their potential. Uh, we have the testing now. And so, you know, when you're dealing with a board-certified person who's seen a 1,000 people, you are going to get not only some data, but you're going to get some wisdom. And that allows a team because a person who's an executive doesn't have time, may not be sleeping, may not 
um, be having the best family life, whatever. And so life is very complicated. People are exhausted. We live in a distracted society. And if you're thinking because you're gifted, you go around the Monopoly board continually picking up your $200, uh, you know, the game's not over. And so uh, if we can show how stress and emotionality in, in a really drag down productivity and motivation and you have some data to show, then people become more motivated and they become more willing to be self-aware and take mm-hmm. with, the, with the more difficult. Um, uh, so that I, happen. Yeah, it happens so much in group. You know, I mean, so many of these individuals are leaders, so they get into a group dynamic. Yes. And then what happens is because they don't have that internal self-awareness that you're talking about, they don't have an internal plan about managing themselves in that other reality context. They're really managing themselves in their mind okay because they're sorting things out and writing and thinking what they're going to do next and having ideas and all that. But when they get into a group, it's a different reality and, and there are different criteria. Go ahead, please. One of the ways of transitioning from that mindset is to look at productivity. That when you're looking at somebody's style, symptoms, whatever you want to call it, we're looking at it in terms of the impact upon productivity for that person and for the group and with the entire system. So Mm -hmm. it's not just a personal emotional thing. We're trying to take the emotion out, take the right out, and use feedback systems, logic, data, because that's how we grew in the field by, by, by using data. And so once you take it into productivity and, and performance and using good feedback to track things and have the person design what the feedback should be, um, it works out better. One, one thing I've done is I've asked a leader uh, to ask permission to record a meeting and then have the person play it back and identify all the great things they did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And identify just one thing, like being quiet for three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, a book that really helped me a lot in that, you, are you familiar with uh, Edward de Bono's Six Thinking Hats? Yes, yes. I mean, that's, that's one of my favorites in that regard because it's a tool to productivity. Right. That they can, they, they can assess pretty quickly because it, makes it, it uh, simplifies it in terms of what, what hat is the person wearing and how do they actually respond to that hat at that moment in that context. I think people are, um, you know, when we look at individuals with <clears throat> who have symptoms of ADHD or who have ADHD, we also have to put it in the larger context that, one, you can't get away with what you used to. You have to do the administrative stuff, whether you're a social worker or whatever. You've got to do the budgets. You've got to keep the data. There's no support system. There's no admin, the sweet person who was in the back room fixing your receipts. That's that's number one. Number two is that we are literally a distracted society. So people are going to sleep with their phones, and they're not ADHD. They're allowing their children to use the 
the phone at the table. So we're reducing interactions. And so on the one hand, we're pulling attention away from critical tasks. And on the other hand, we're really reducing the amount of interaction practice that people have in negotiating, in just saying what they want to say, you know, just positive assertiveness. You know, I, I, in, in my practice, I see many more people with social anxiety, generalized anxiety, um, uh, depression, and, um, you know, a myriad of other things. And mm -hmm. usually, uh, you know, you can, <clears throat> as you know, you may get a diagnosis of depression, and then you fix the depression, and you're still not productive. And that's when people begin to look at their ADHD and understand that because they couldn't be productive, they couldn't really reach their potential. That was part of the depression. Not all the time, but... but uh, yeah, they took the affective part out and corrected it, but still the cognitive was looming in the background and causing disarray. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, it's such an interesting thing. You're, you're, you're so accurate. I appreciate talking to you so much because that whole split between affect and cognition, right. it's, it's like everybody thinks that the human being is just a cognitive, I mean, is just an affective animal. And that, that the entire diagnostic system is based on feelings. And, you know, and so then people think they're constructive if they're dealing with feelings or if they're, you know, this is how I really feel. I'm just telling you exactly what it is, you know, instead of what, what, what the cognitive context is for that. Well, you know, I'm going to take a break here and I'm going to come back and ask you a question, which I think is going to be very easy for you to answer. You may want to answer it in two or three ways. Uh, but I think what's really uh, helpful for our listeners and what people respond to so affirmatively is the idea of, of an example. You know, someone who was this way and then what you did and then how they turned around following that, uh, that intervention on your part. So I'm going to come back and ask for a couple of those examples because they're so uh, revealing. The narrative is so helpful because there's so many people who are struggling with exactly what we're talking about. And a human brain, a real example, brings it right down to where the rubber meets the road. So. When we come back, I'm going to come back and ask you all about that. We'll take a break now. Well, folks, you know as well as I do that psychiatric treatment failure, especially after multiple medication trials and those very, very brief hospitalizations, may prove insufficient to deal at home with the complexity of troubled children and, and those adolescents from 6 to 17 years old. Improved care, those next mandatory steps, should include a more comprehensive approach to address those multiple levels of challenges, from family to peers to school, diagnostically from defiance to depression, on every level for families, including military families, internationally. The Barry Robinson Center's 32-acre open college-like campus in Norfolk, Virginia, provides safety and security and clean, comfortable living how do we know we refer folks over there all the time, strongly endorse what they're doing? So for further information and informed interview, connect at this page, barryrobinson.org forward slash core. Well, you folks already know that here at Core Brain Journal, we're on a mission to introduce you to resources that make significant contributions to the investigation of those predictable mind science applications. 
Our colleagues at DHA Lab Group provide a real difference with treatment options for people at every level, from first awareness of mind problems to those frustrating times when even well-informed treatment becomes surprisingly unpredictable. For my entire professional life, from psychoanalysis to brain scans, I've searched for, yes, improved predictability. The good news for all of us, from professionals to patients, remarkably effective research offers useful, cost-effective, organic options far beyond guesswork with psychiatric medications alone. DHA lab tests measure unbalanced biomedical details through easily available testing, now available globally for a variety of molecular answers from, for example, methylation, copper, and cryptopyrrole challenges. Check in for more details at dhalab.com core. That's d-h-a-l-a-b.com forward slash core. Well, thank you so much, Jerry Markle, Dr. Jerry Markle. This is so interesting. I mean, we're we're two peas in the same pod. I'll tell you that. I just love listening to you, and and you're and you're so articulate about your findings and the way you work. So the question I was going to ask was an example question, and maybe a couple of examples where individuals came in with a certain set and then they had a dialogue with you about that set. They were having some problems and then what, what was revealed and then what you actually did about it and what, how they turned it around following those interventions. Do you have an example like that? Yeah, one, one example that comes to mind is an assistant professor at a major university who was going for promotion and not doing very well, showing everyone that she was a great teacher, a great researcher, um, but letting her academic writing go astray. And she then decided, she then um, investigated and got a neuropsych report because, you know, her potential and her productivity were so discrepant. And so it turns out that she has inattentive ADHD. And we, the school, uh, is helping her in her quest for promotion and providing uh, the coaching. Uh, and so what began to happen is an understanding of, one, how her various symptoms impinged upon her motivation and her capacity to produce. Two, how stress interfered with motivation and productivity. And the last thing was sleep. Mm. And so when you have all of these things, as stress goes up, productivity goes down. As fatigue goes up, productivity goes down and motivation and endurance and resilience. And so uh, we worked on only one thing at a time and she didn't like that. She said, you know, Smart people like to do things fast. I mean, I get things done, one, two, three, I, I understand. But you become habituated to what's going on. And um, over at least six months, um, we got a spreadsheet to monitor what was going on. We looked at relationships with co-authors, how to be positively assertive, how to present things to administrators. Um, so we did a lot of skill building, time management, where, where your think time is. And um, it's just remarkable. Got awards, 
has three publications already, because what you're doing is you're just unleashing the potential without the baggage to, to bring you down. She's not carrying the bowling balls. Right. She's not carrying the bowling balls. So uh, then how did, how did she uh, – give, give us another example. It's a little closer to exactly how you would get her to do that. So you identified it. Did you use a journal? What, what was the actual application of, of helping her cognitively become aware of what she was doing? Because I'm more behaviorally inclined – I'm always look at the, looking at the behavior. So what times did you assign to think? How much did you get done? What was the consequence? And how did you then move on? Mm -hmm. Once you have a description of that, you can get into the feelings. Were you tired that day? Were you unhappy because of some interaction, what's going on with the kids. Um, and it becomes uh, the capacity to gain greater control and to understand that you really have to have for long-term productivity and high-achieving people, you need to deal with lifestyle. You need your sleep. You need the balanced diet. You need the steadiness of the medication and have it titrated um, and the exercise. And when you ask, say, physicians who are coming in for certification exams, you say, you know, you look a little peaked. How much sleep are you getting? Oh, well, you know, probably five hours, six hours. Really? Well, <laughs> last couple of nights, it's only four. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, the environment imposes some very difficult conditions to even gifted people because I don't care how gifted you are. If you're exhausted and stressed, you're not going to learn. I tell you, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And uh, I've seen so many people that are thinking I'm uh, wh whatever, whatever age they are, they think I'm young enough to do this. And uh, so they're going to do four or five hours. And people get paranoid just it's, it's a natural paranoia. They mm -hmm. yes. then start to react poorly to circumstances because they're so busy reading into them in negative ways because their energy is, uh, they have a suspicious, maybe paranoia is too much. It almost sounds schizophrenic, but it has a schizophrenic quality because it's so disconnected with the reality of the moment because things are amplified so counterproductively just because a person's tired. Right. And then they react counterproductively because they perceived it as counterproductive. Right. I think one of the things that I think helps people like this assistant professor is to make it legitimate to work in short spurts. So I liken some people as sprinters, not marathon runners. Mm -hmm. And you're going to be needing, be active. Maybe you want to be writing on a whiteboard standing up. So to use all the modalities to keep yourself activated and maybe just use something like Focus Keeper or any of these timers where you work for 25 minutes or 40 minutes and then you have to stop. You have to take some deep breaths. You have to stretch. So you work hard and then you relax. So, you know, it's that kind of routine because people who, who have ADHD symptoms, you, they have this vision that they've got to work for three or four hours. 
It may be okay if they can hyper-focus on an area they like, but frequently they hyper-focus on the internet and not on the three things that they have to do. That's so true. It's so, so excellent. So then once they have that structure, now I'm still curious. I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I'm just trying to get with you on this because I think if I'm thinking about it, others are too. So it's very, it would be very useful for a, a woman like you to be with so many of us in terms of, hey, let's get this straight. Let's talk about, you know, and you really put a cognitive grid on an otherwise uh, amorphous set of tasks mm -hmm. that have a certain reality out there, but the path is not clear how to get there. And, and how so, to control it. Yeah, and how to, how to control themselves in the process, yeah. Well, well here's another example. I was working with an, an attorney, a solo practitioner, who, excellent in court, charming, smart, you know, gregarious, lots of energy, but out of the courtroom, in his office, things are awry, okay? He doesn't give directions well. He doesn't supervise well. He's not collecting uh, the bills. He's not sending out the invoices. He's not following up on that. At home with two young children, uh, he's coming home grouchy. Then he wants his own time, so he goes back to the office. And maybe he's taking his bike, so he's getting a little exercise, but then he stays at the office for two or three or four hours and then starts a cycle of fatigue and being late to court and disappointing people and himself. And so um, we had to chip away uh, with very concrete goals. And so if you're supporting a family, I think collectibles would be the place to start. <laughs> hey, basic thing, who wants to touch money? Right. I'm, I'm doing this for theory. <laughs> uh, so uh, I think something concrete like that. And really, as soon as this person gets on the phone, he's got the money. They love him. They want to pay him. But if he doesn't ask for it, they're not going to give it. That's basic. So that, you know, yeah. that, that's, that's one thing. Uh, another thing was the sleep. And so we had to chip away and maybe make the sleep important only three days a week. And those were the days where in the morning he had to go to court. So when he got to court early, people were so surprised and delighted because usually he's a whirling dervish. Mm -hmm. And he provided a sense of calm and control and a different professional image. That's huge. And it is. Control. He looked like a pro. Which he is. He is a pro, but he looked like a pro in addition because he wasn't, he wasn't fretting. Right. And, and, and frantic. And, yeah. Frantic. Nobody wants to, the brightest person does not want to look like the absent-minded professor. So true. So yeah. true. Uh, so once... Once people have neuropsych or you give them your little assessment, if, you know, and so many people, their short-term memory is not on a par with their capacity to, to put ideas together. And so once they understand that discrepancy, they're much more apt to use an aid instead of thinking, I have to do this all myself. So if you're a person with a bad memory and you're in a meeting and somebody says something, you say, wait a minute, you know, this is really important. Let me get this down. Or I'd like to tape this. So mm -hmm. that you're more apt to regulate the environment and, and you're part of it so you can enhance productivity. You won't miss anything. Yeah, I mean, really just controlling the flow, it's difficult if you're not controlling yourself. 
Right. If you're controlling yourself, you can take a moment to think about it and to be, uh, you know, to be circumspect about what's actually happening at the moment, which I think from my experience of watching individuals and group uh, over the years is that when a person does that, it puts a certain gravity on the situation Mm -hmm. just because we're pausing to let, let it sink in to become part of our internal experience as opposed to it's out there and we're just spinning around with it and we're in the it's descent into a maelstrom you know the issue is we're not going to descend in the maelstrom we're going to catch this log and take a moment and ride with it and see where we are i i think for people with um, high intellectual potential they don't understand that the people they're talking to may have a different style may not have their skill and need a minute to process yeah. And well, I, I, that, that's so true. Yeah. So they, when, when you do <clears throat> that, you are so empathetic and compassionate to other people because they understand you're taking time to take care of them. And that brings a richness to a relationship, especially when you're dealing with children or subordinates or, or even colleagues. Well, I mean, it sounds like a, a, a great technique. You could put that together in a family book, too. <laughs> right. You know, I'm just such a big proponent of family meetings. You know, practicing Absolutely. having a discussion about this from every perspective in some kind of an even, and what it does, it trains everybody, even as children, to manage themselves correctly in that group context, as opposed to not, you know. Right. Let's do something. Let's make this a constructive experience that we all participate in as opposed to uh, not going the other direction. Great, great examples. Super examples. So do you do, uh, do you do it? Any teaching at all now or do you really just do the coaching? I do seminars in corporate settings on reducing distractions, increasing productivity, communication skills. Um, I got into the demons of distraction for general audiences when I was cons- consulting in New York. And here I have all this research about ADHD symptoms and, and strategies and people are walking around and looking like they've got ADD. So I decided I would take the research and convert it into the general audience. And so that's been um, a way of spreading the research-based strategies in a general audience. Well, it's great, and you get away from the word ADD because it's so counterproductive. I mean, the the phrase itself, when I'm doing an evaluation with a person, I frequently say, you know, you don't have the criteria for the attention deficit disorder, and and if I tell you that I'm going to treat you with a medication for it, uh, I'm going to tell you right now that if you tell others, they're going to disagree with me and you, and and you have a whole other level of discussion that's so counterproductive. I mean, you do have an executive function issue. You know, there's no question about that. You have a working memory issue. Right. No question about that. But, but the whole issue of ADD, I just don't even like the word, even though I've got it on the front of the book. I mean, it's just not, uh, you know, it's, it's counterproductive. And that sounds like what you're doing. I mean, the whole demons of distraction. So let's talk a little bit about that while we're, we're on it. Um, the whole idea of actions against distraction. Let's talk a little bit about that book, which is your newest book, and what is the uh, kind of the message there. Obviously, you won't be able to tell us about the entire book, but what's your? How does it differentiate from the other two books? 
you know, it's one thing to talk about what to do. It's another thing to provide the step-by-step about how to do it. Mm-hmm. So there are research-based strategies such as visualization and imagery, self-talk, you know, understanding the consequence system, breaking tasks down. So I came up with a number of strategies and then showed how each strategy could be adjusted if you were dealing with stress as a distractor or fatigue as a distractor or technology or other people. Because, um, you know, people don't have think time, for example. So one of the things I ask executives, uh, look, you have your scheduler. Where is the think time for you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, what do you mean? You know, I'm at this (laughs) meeting. (laughs) Well, when do you review? When do you predict? When do you get some new information? And so, especially like for this lawyer, we made 40 minutes three times a week in his office was his think time to decide his strategies for the different cases. And those people in his office also got the think time. So he was modeling a very productive behavior and reinforcing it and showing it for the people in his office. So what I do in the book is have people look at a specific behavior, pick out a strategy, provide them an example of what would self-talk look like if you were battling the stress demon versus the technology demon. That sounds terribly interesting. That (laughs) sounds like a lot of fun. I mean, that's going to be a very successful book. Well, thank you. Because that is, that is a book that needs to be written. I mean, because when you think about what's going on with individuals in the coaching business, and we've interviewed a number of coaches, I mean, their ideas are great, but I, it sounds like you've taken it down to a much finally, more finely honed perspective in the context of exactly what the problem is, as opposed to this is what you do in general, are you doing it, you know? Right, because as an educational psychologist, we're looking at how people learn and apply their learning and how they can be productive. And Mm -hmm. on a behavioral aspect, you're looking at how did it work out and what was the consequence? How do we have to, what feedback do we need and how can we adjust it? And sometimes you really have to be working in a team with a psychologist or a social worker or somebody who gets if there are deeper issues so we're we're not just looking at surface issues we're look we're looking at deeper issues in terms of behavior and cognition but when it gets into the clinical an educational psychologist is the person who says you know it might be a good idea to have two or three sessions with somebody clinical just to see or you know i wonder about your medication maybe you want to contact your physician mm-hmm. You have to reach out and be thinking always in the context of the team and the whole person. Well, I'm telling you, that's exactly where we're coming from. It's so interesting because we work with people um, nationally and internationally, and we're always trying to find out we can build a team wherever they are. And when we do that, we say, you know, I'm going to tell you right now that if you're going to be working with somebody, and I'm I'm not going to write the medications for you because I don't have a license in Michigan or wherever. But I'm going to tell you, if you could get somebody to work with me, but I'm going to tell you, don't ask a psychiatrist to work with me because mm-hmm. they very likely won't. <laughs> you find a family practitioner who's willing to be on a team who runs themselves as a team. Now, I'm, 
you know, then, then there's an opportunity for us to have a conversation which would be more productive because there's so many biases about what's actually going on in the industry that if you actually think about just getting a, a team member that's relatively unbiased about the process. Some of the complicated cases, as you know, when you're using a variety of medications, say somebody has lupus or they have diabetes and mm -hmm. serious depression, you need somebody with uh, the expertise to titrate some yeah. a little different level. So there's a time where exactly what you're talking about and then there's a time when you and I might say, well, I think you need to see somebody with a different set of skills. Yeah, yeah, so true. Well, that is so interesting. I was also thinking about your other two books. I'm just going to run by them real quickly. But in looking at the titles, it looks like the books are a statement about your own evolution as a professional as well. Because it looks like you started with identifying the problem. Right. And then you took it to the next level of the antecedents to the problem. And now you're into the third book, which is now we've got those two lined up. Now we're going to talk about what you actually do with that entire milieu, if you will, of, of right. what's going on in your mind and, 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 and the whole thing. Is that, is that correct? Right. So, that, so the actions book is a perfect book for a social worker, uh, a coach, any kind of clinician who wants to just be very, very practical after the dynamics are finished and the motivation is there, how do you keep it going by showing people real behavior change and how to keep it going, how to, how to get maintenance? You would be an excellent person at Chad. You know that. Have you done presentations at Chad? Yes, different times. Yeah, you'd be, per you'd be perfect at Chad. So great. Yeah, we just interview interviewed Ned Hollowell. Uh -huh. and, uh, it, was, it was an interesting conversation. He's a very, very interesting guy. He's made a big contribution. Huge. Yeah. And so Ray go ahead, please. What did you just say? I'm sorry. Rady, John Rady. I would love to have John on. I haven't had him on. I admire his work so much. And that book, Spark. Yeah. So much sense to people when we talk about exercise and lifestyle and the way he differentiates how would you exercise and what would you do if you had depression versus ADHD. And mm -hmm. if you have ADHD don't think you're just going to exercise a little bit in the morning. Come three, four o'clock. You better get on those stairs and run up and down and expend some of that energy. So I, I think he'd be a great guest. too. Yeah, I'm definitely going to, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting him on. I mean, for me, I've had to earn a little credibility with who I've had on and, and, the, and the whole process, but I think we're, we're getting there and our numbers are positive. So I think then there's a little bit more of a, a thought of, of coming on. I haven't even asked him, but he's, he's on my list. So thank you for that suggestion, that advice. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate talking to you and having a chance a to pleasure. a chance to meet. And uh, we're going to have all these books on your show notes, links to get to them. We're going to have a link. So tell us how people can contact you as we close down. What would be a way that uh, they could come in contact with you? Uh, my email is jerry, G-E-R-I, at managingyourmind.com. And I offer... Um, complimentary consultation so that people can get to understand my style and goals and I can see if we're a good match. My website for business is jerrymarkle.com, G-E-R-I-M-A-R-K-E-L. And if adolescents and, and college students, uh, graduate students uh, need help, it's man managingyourmind.com. 
managingyourmind.com. Yeah, I'm, I'm writing that down. I don't see that in the notes here, but that's great. So that's great. We'll have all those links in the, in the show notes, folks, if you're in the car and you didn't get them, you're driving to work in the morning. So, uh, you know, just so you know, Jerry, this is going to come out in about probably somewhere in the range of three to four weeks. Okay. And we'll let you know. We'll let you know on the inside. So. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you, ma'am. I feel exactly the same way. So you have a good evening. Bye-bye. Bye now. Thanks for listening to Core Brain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because, as you know, details really do matter. One of the most pervasive misunderstood challenges is how commonplace medications like those written for ADHD are used so regularly without clear guidelines. If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference.